Hey guys, welcome to episode 142 of the True Crime Couple podcast. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So we hope you're all doing well. We've missed you very much, even though it's it's really only been a week since our last release. I know, sometimes when time like that goes by, even though it's just a week, it feels like a month. So it's like, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad we're back. I'm glad we're in our chairs doing this. We're finally back to our original routine. I mean, last week we had to push the episode back because the week prior we had COVID. So after this episode, we're going to be back to our bi-weekly schedule. So it's just nice to, to see you guys back to back. Yeah. Well, talk to you. <laughs> yeah. And, get, and getting back on track. We like to make sure we do the right thing around here. We also listen to, we always listen to our reviews and a lot of feedback has been saying our sound has been a little bit low so we're trying something new here and we hope the sound is a lot better please let us know if it's not or if it's working um one thing that does happen is after 60 days our old ads they kind of renew and our advertisers just throw in other ads so that's why sometimes the the volume is different between um our speaking voices and then the ads that are put in in our older episodes. So we apologize if anyone's trying to, you know, get some shut eye while they're listening to us yeah. and our and ads. And not have your ears blown out. But uh, we unfortunately, we cannot do anything about that. Yeah, we've reached out and hopefully there's something they can do to adjust the sound. So we do listen to everything you say and we try to make it better when we can. When we can. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so also please don't be mad. I haven't done this in a while. So here are our um, shameless plugs that I have to get through every once in a while. If you are interested in two bonus episodes a month and ad-free episodes of our regular releases, please join our Patreon page at patreon.com slash truecrimecouple. And if you join the tier at $5 or up, you will receive a True Crime Couple sticker. And speaking of our sponsors, please be sure to check them out because they really do um, such a wonderful job. We only pick valuable sponsors because we know that's what our listeners deserve. And the sponsors that we have for this episode are Gerber Life Insurance and Skylight Frames. And what better time than the holiday season, right? Exactly. So, John, are you ready to hear something crazy? You already know my answer. (laughs) So sometimes things your parents told you when you're a kid stick with you. Every time I'm a few blocks away from home, I always hear my mother's voice telling me that most accidents happen closest to your house. And it always makes me like tighten up my driving skills. And when I read about this case, I could hear my mother saying the same thing to me. So I looked into it. Like always, she's right. Most accidents do occur when motorists are in closest proximity to their home. Insurance agents call it the comfort zone because you're in your comfort zone and you tend to take more risks, feel more comfortable. And, you know, you might also even feel like more comfortable driving home after a few too many drinks, which is not True Crime Couple podcast approved. Nope. (laughs) Or, you know, you're just generally distracted because you're close to home. And I think that could be applied to crime as well. When you're in your safe zone, your comfort zone of your house or a few blocks away from your house, you feel like I'm safe. Yeah, I think you let your guard down a little bit. Mm -hmm. 
And when we're in that comfort zone, our homes or even our town, surrounded by the people who love us, and we feel safe, what we don't realize is that we're actually at our most vulnerable. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. In July of 2016, Sierra Joggin was enjoying her summer break from college. The 20-year-old was studying human resource management at the University of Toledo and had decided recently that she was going to finish her degree from home while she interned at her uncle's metal stamping business. Sierra, or C, as all of her friends and family called her, was said to have had a confidence about her that is not often reserved for young women. She knew what she wanted and she knew who she was, and she was in a really happy place. She had a large family that she was close to, and she had been in a happy relationship with her boyfriend, Josh Kolinsky, for just about eight years at that point. That's a long time for a, for a young woman. For a 20-year-old? For a young woman or man, yeah. It is basically almost half their life. Yeah, I mean, hey, I we were together at 20. Well, I, I mean, I was 20. Well, at 20, but I mean, they started dating probably around their eighth grade year. Yeah, wow. It's a long time. So those who love her, and there were plenty, described Sierra as grateful, fun-loving, and driven. In high school, she played volleyball, which was a hobby that she took with her into college, where she played on an intramural league. Sierra also had a desire to travel. She'd recently been on a trip throughout Italy, and since then it seemed like she'd been bitten by the travel bug. But for that, she would have to wait, because she had to finish school, and... That was something that was a really big goal of hers. Hey, listen, it's good to have goals. And like, and I think it's really interesting. Uh, I actually think it shows some of her character that she decided to um, finish at home and then go to work for her uh, uncle's company. Yes. Like, I don't think a lot of students, you know, would do that. College students would, you know. I think it shows a sense of, like, maturity to say, like, all right, I'm going to live at home. I'm kind of done with that partying scene. And, I mean, it was about a 36 minute drive from her house to the college so it wasn't too far away but I mean I also went to a college that was about 30 minutes from my house and lived there (laughs) yeah and it would have been the mature and responsible decision for me to live at home my last two years so I respect her for that decision yeah see (laughs) yeah but it was summer and she had a very much needed break And of course, she was choosing to spend a lot of that time with her boyfriend. According to Josh, the two of them spent as much time together as possible, despite the fact that they both went to different colleges. However, now that she was home and was commuting to her school, it did make things a lot more easy for the two of them to hang out. And it was it's kind of always been that way for Sierra and Josh. He's going to say this later in interviews and also people that knew them since high school through college. It was kind of like if you saw Josh in town, you also saw Sierra. So the two of them were really close. So that brings us to the evening of July 19th. At 5 p.m., Sheila Vakalik, who is Sierra's mother, caught her just as she was getting onto her new bike that she'd picked up from a garage sale. 
Sierra told her mother that she was going to go on a bike ride to Josh's house. Sheila exchanged goodbyes and I love yous with her daughter and watched her begin her journey to her boyfriend's house, which was seven miles away. We're talking bicycle, right? Yes. Okay. See, my 31-year-old self wouldn't dare to get on a bicycle and go seven miles. Just saying. Because then you'd have to come back. Right. So that's 14 miles. My 20-year-old self wouldn't do that. (laughs) You know what? I mean, maybe my 20-year-old self would have done that, but not now. I'm past that. Well, it was, um, it'll come out later, but it was definitely, she was very active. So this was her exercise for the day. Because even her mother was kind of like, it's a long drive. Yeah. And she's like, getting my exercise in kind of thing. So she was a very active girl and it was something that she enjoyed to do. So that's cool. It's a fun way to get your exercise in. Oh, definitely. So Sheila was also headed out. She was attending evening classes and she wouldn't be back until after 9 p.m. So she kind of expected her daughter to be back around that time. Once Sierra reached Josh's house, she stayed for a little while, but then made the choice to begin the journey back home before it got too dark. And it was approximately 6.45 p.m. that she's going to decide to, like, make the journey back home. The temperatures were also dropping from the time that she reached Josh's house. Um, They'd fallen about 20 degrees, and she was dressed in shorts and a tank top, so she wasn't really dressed for that temperature drop, so they wanted to make that ride back before it got any colder. Josh said that he wanted to accompany Sierra at least halfway home because he didn't really like her making that long journey by herself, so he followed alongside her on his motorcycle. And despite the fact that they had been dating for almost a decade, they were still young and in love. During the ride, the couple spoke to each other and laughed. Josh recorded two videos that were uploaded to Snapchat and later seen by police of Sierra riding next to him in front of him and then next to him on her bike. In the video, she's seen wearing sunglasses, athletic shorts, a yellow tank top, And she had draped a checkered dish towel on the seat of the bike, um, I guess, to give her some, like, extra cushion. Because 14 miles is a long way to go. And those seats typically hurt. I don't know. I don't know about you. Well, this is more of, like, a a mountain bike, not, like, a riding bike. Okay. So it's a little bit more comfortable. Still, you still need the towel. No. Yeah. You totally need a towel. You do. You definitely do. With, like, those Peloton-style bikes, I need, like... A cushion seat and cushion pants and then like a pillow. <laughs> and, and you know, we might as well throw in one of those like the, those donuts, you know, like when you have oh, yes. people have surgery, they have like the donut thing. Totally. Put, that on, put that on there too. <laughs> so in the Snapchat video, Sierra seemed really happy. And so was Josh. They were laughing and joking with each other. Josh said right around the halfway point, the couple stopped. They said their goodbyes and they shared a kiss. And Sierra told him that she would text him as soon as possible when she made it home. And the two of them parted ways. Well, Sheila, Sierra's mother, returned home from her evening class around 9.30 p.m. And as she approached the house, she knew that something was strange right away. Because Sierra's bedroom light wasn't on. It was dark. So... If she was going to ride her bike home from Josh's house, she knew more than likely she wasn't going to do so in the dark. 
And when she went inside the house and found that Sierra wasn't home, she wasn't immediately alarmed. She just assumed that maybe the couple had changed their plans. Maybe she was going to stay longer. They were going to go out to eat, maybe go see a movie. So she just assumed that instead of Sierra driving her bike home, maybe Josh would give her a ride home. I mean, that would make sense, especially, you know, if it's too dark. You just leave the bicycle there and just get on the motorcycle. Get it the next day. Right. Um, I think that it was also the fact that, you know, she's 20 years old. Her mother trusted her immensely. She was a responsible girl. It was very rare. Like, she usually always comes home before 11 p.m. That's what her mom says. So she just thought it was a change of plans. And when your kids are older like that, you kind of give them a little bit more freedom. Of course, and it's and it always goes to the same thing we say all the time. If you know somebody and you're close to them and they have a, I guess for lack of a better term, a routine all the time, if something's not going that way, then something's wrong. If it's breaking, if they break in their, if they're breaking their character or, you know, they're not doing what they normally do, that kind of throws out a red flag, doesn't it? Totally, and that's why when she receives a phone call at like 10.30 p.m., And it's Josh on the other line, and he's asking if Sheila has seen Sierra. That's when the alarm bells kind of go off. Like, and she says, well, what what do you mean, basically? I thought she was with you. And Josh is going to say, no, I've been trying to reach her. She left my house a little before 7 p.m., and I rode with her halfway, and she said she was going to call or text when she got home, but she never did. And he said he's... You know, around eight o'clock, he texted her and called her. He wasn't like, where are you? Like immediately, I need to know, did you make it home? But he gave her space. But then after some time, inquired if she was okay. And since then, she hadn't been responding to him. And that's why he's going to call Sheila and say, is she home? And when Sheila says, not only is her daughter not home, but the bike's not even there. And... They know something's wrong because she's never gone like MIA like this before. And it's 1030. She's always home by now. Yeah. No, that would totally put up a red flag and there might be a reason for concern. I mean, she could listen. She could have gotten to an accident or maybe somebody, maybe it was dark and she was driving home and riding her bike home and maybe someone hit her on the side of the road and drove away. Like you never know. I mean, anything is a possibility when you're dealing with being on a bicycle on a road or even a sidewalk even you never know what could happen you know what's so funny it's exactly where i'm going next oh well that's you're even predicting the the movement (laughs) of the story (laughs) sierra's large family as well as josh they they're gonna spring into action delta ohio is a rural community a village of just over three thousand people so the first thought was not immediately that she met foul play Rather, they feared that maybe she had been hit by a vehicle while riding her bike and she was either still on the side of the road or she was in a hospital. The probability of her being hit by something was actually quite high. Um, So it makes sense that that's where their minds went. Tractor trailers usually travel the road that she was riding on and sometimes they carry wide loads. So it may not even have been like nefarious as like a hit and run. They might not have noticed that they clipped her. It's actually funny that you mentioned those wide load tractor trailers because some of them have like, um, I'm trying to give a description, almost think of it almost like a silicone or rubber antenna and usually they're on the back and like if you get like hit by it, it's like a whip, 
Like it, it feel like you could get hit by it. It hurts. Like it, and it could knock yeah. someone off their bike. You never know. Something so innocent, like a little rubber piece on the end of a of a of a tractor trailer, hits somebody on the side of the road. It might knock her off. Yeah, a strong wind would knock me off a bike. You kidding me? <laughs> do, do I have to put the training wheels on for you? <laughs> Probably. Wait, really? You know, I've never seen you on a bicycle in in twelve years. No, you haven't. But wow, do we need to do that now? We've only been together for eleven years. Oh, eleven. Okay. Have you been following me for a year? I'm sorry. No. (laughs) Were you stalking me for a whole year? No, no, no. Definitely not. You know what? You know what? You know what we're gonna do now? We're gonna get bicycles. Uh, This is what we're gonna do next week. No. Let's get bicycles. We'll go on a trail. We'll talk about. I'm not steady. Okay. We'll we'll talk about it. I'll put the training wheels on if I have to. Okay. So on this unusually cold night in July, the members of Sierra's family, along with her boyfriend Josh, are going to search the desolate roads that she would have taken to go home. And you know, um, the family in Delta, Ohio, this is in Fulton County, Ohio, and it is, like anyone who lives there will tell you, predominantly cornfields. So these roads are desolate. There's there's not a lot of people there's not homes, so like it, it's not like she would have fallen and she could have maybe got to someone's house. Like we're just talking miles and miles of cornfields, straight out of Children of the Corn. So they drive slowly and they looked not just to the side of the road, but they also looked through the cornfields that line the roads. Um, at this time of year, the cornfields are at least eight feet tall. So it would be near impossible to see into them at night, but they were just looking to see if there were any disturbances in the corn. They were just looking for anything unusual that they could stop and maybe look at to see if she had been there. Okay, and th- and the family's doing this at well, this point. At this, Sheila and Josh are out looking, and other family members are home, contacting all the hospitals in the area to see if she was potentially brought to any hospitals. Okay. So while Sheila and Josh are driving around, they pass a fire station where they do see a police officer. They approached him and asked if he could help. He said that if she couldn't be found in their initial searches, that they should call the police for further aid. And they continued their search after that. But both avenues of search yielded no results. And by the time those who were searching the road got back home to the house, Sierra had been missing for four hours. So they decided that it was finally time to call the police. Yeah, I think that's the best judgment call. I mean, you've done everything you can within the confines of your little community. You might as well get the police involved to search other places. I completely agree. Okay, let's get back to the episode. So when law enforcement arrived at the home of Sierra Joggin, they spoke to her mother, who emphatically told them that something was wrong. This was very unlike her daughter. She wouldn't have just decided to go somewhere else. She would have called or texted, and she never stayed out past 11 p.m. They asked Sheila and Josh to recount everything that took place, and they did. When they asked why she would bike to her boyfriend's house, you know, kind of like we said, like that's a 14-mile journey, um, because she had a driver's license and a vehicle, Sheila stated that her daughter told her that this was her workout for the day, and it's not something that she had never done before. She was a very active young girl. Despite the fact that at 20 years old, Sierra was technically an adult, and they had to wait to officially file a missing persons report, the police really sprung into action and responded to the fact that her family believed she was missing. Um, 
other units that were on duty also joined in on the search and they put out an APB for both Sierra and the bike that she had been riding. And the police agreed to kind of take that same journey that Sierra would have taken from her house to Josh's kind of like forward and back to, to do a look both ways. Okay. I mean, that's pretty aggressive searching for, uh, for you know, not even following off. Uh, I'm sorry, file, uh, filing the police report. Right. Cause initial right now they could say, well, she's 20 years old. Just wait till the morning, but they're springing into action, which is a really positive response that you're going to that's what you're going to want to say. Yeah, because I find that that sometimes happens in smaller towns because everyone knows each other. It's kind of that kind of feel. You know, the mentality is, you know, help the next neighbor, you know, yeah. help your neighbor or whatever. So I feel like that actually plays a very important role in an investigation like this. Someone's gone missing. They're over the age of 18 or, you know, they're an adult. It's complicated. And I, and I hate that you have to wait so long to put in that kind of report. Because by that time, you don't even know what could happen to the, your family member or, you know, your loved one or whoever, you know? Right. Those gray areas are really complicated. And it is good that they do that. I do agree with you that I think the fact that they're from a village of 3,000 people probably contributed to the fact that the police were so empathetic to this family's search for their daughter. Yeah. I don't think it would, ha- would have happened this way if it was like, I don't know, a city of like a million people. I completely you know? agree. Well, there's a lot of other stuff to do. That's true. So one of the men who had been searching in what was then the early morning hours of July 20th was Jeremy Simon, an officer with the Fulton County Sheriff's Department. He and his canine partner were traveling north around midnight on County Road 6 when Simon noticed a small section of the cornfield on the east side of the road was disturbed. Now, this is of great importance because it was when Josh and Sierra reached County Road 6 that Josh parted ways with Sierra because that was essentially the halfway point between their two homes. Upon closer inspection of the area, he noted a strong smell of gasoline, a motorcycle tire track, and a box of fuses. A box of fuses. Yeah, that's what he sees on the east side of the road. Okay. And then when he looks across the road on the west side, he sees near the white fog line of the road, he sees a pair of women's sunglasses. And he was like, oh, that's odd. So then on that side of the road, he goes a little bit further into the cornfield because he thinks he sees something. And he notices it's the reflective badge on a purple mountain bike the purple mountain bike is what sierra joggin had been driving home well riding home no so so on one side of the road you have motorcycle tire tracks um a box of fuses and a strong smell of gasoline and then on the other side of the road across the street the sunglasses are found by the fog line And a mountain bike is about three or four rows back into the cornfield as if it was being concealed. Okay. So right off the bat, I I mean, this isn't good. This doesn't look good at first glance here. No. It seems to me like that this might be a, it's not, I don't want to say a crime scene, but like, I feel like there might be something going on. Like, it it looks like there might have been some sort of struggle. If everything's kind of, you know, strewn about, you got everything all over the road. You know, it looks like maybe just someone just tossed the bike into the cornfield 
and then all that other stuff was kind of all over the place from a struggle. That would make sense. Right. Well, a crime scene team is called in to kind of look further into everything. And it is good because now we're talking about the early morning hours. So the sun will be coming up soon. It is difficult to do these searches in a cornfield in the dark. A further search of the area yielded a checkered dish towel with a reddish brown stain found about 1,000 feet north of where the bike had been found. There was also a reddish-brown stain on the handlebars and seat of the bike. Testing would later confirm that the reddish-brown stains on the bike and dish towel were blood. Both Sheila and Josh confirmed that the bike that had been the one found in the cornfield belonged to Sierra. Detectives believed that the area on the west side of County Road 6 was the abduction site of the now officially reported missing college student. The news was a devastating blow for the family. This had not been what they thought happened. Because abductions were not the norm for Fulton County investigators, the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation was brought in to assist them on the case. Quickly, agents found two areas within the cornfield that were consistent with the paths of entry and exit. Within those areas, they found broken corn stalks, blood was on corn leaves, shoe pattern impressions in loose dirt, and about 20 feet away from that, they found a green sock with blood stains on it. Another 15 feet from that location, they found a pair of men's sunglasses, as well as a screwdriver with an orange handle. The screwdriver had blood stains on it as well. Okay, so... Let me get. Let me just make sure I understand this correctly, because there was a lot of information. Yeah, I know. Sorry. Recap. No, it's okay. So all of these items were found in the cornfield. On the side where the bicycle was. Okay, so it looks like they went in one direction, all those items were there, and then out the other side of the cornfield. Still on the same side of the road, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Hmm. For all we know, that screwdriver could have been used to hurt her. I mean, where's all this blood coming from? Well, they're going to get into that because they're going to analyze these um, pieces of evidence that they do find. But it does really show them that there was another individual there and they left things behind. Now, a pair of male sunglasses, a screwdriver. And remember, on the other side of the road, there was the fuse boxes. Okay, I just want to throw something out here. Um, Is this private property or is this like... It's somebody's farm. It's someone's farm. Mm-hmm. That okay. butts up to the road. Now, I would want to know how much land this person owns and if there's any other structures on the property. Because if they've gone through the cornfield, that would suggest that they're very comfortable with that. So that means someone has to know the knowledge of the land. Because why would you go through the cornfield like that? Well, they, they're not going too deep into the okay. cornfield. Okay. It's three to four rows within. Nothing is further than three to four rows, but it's found like a thousand feet to the right okay. of where the bike was. So it was kind of like the struggle happened within the first few rows of the cornfield, but did stretch a long distance. All right, cool. Thank you for clearing that up. I just wanted You're to welcome. make sure. That's what I'm here for. Yeah. So as the evidence was being collected and documented, another lead came in. A local farmer named Troy Vandenbush dropped evidence off at the sheriff's department. 
I mean, that's pretty awesome. It's like, hey, I have evidence for you. That's wonderful. Thank you, sir. Did you bag it, sir? Uh, no, he didn't. That's not good then, sir. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, he also was just, you know, taking things off the side of the road, which, you know, everyone does every once in a while. So he had heard that there was a lot of police activity on County Road 6. So he does the Good Samaritan right thing. He heard that people were searching for a local missing girl. And he had something that he thought could help. He said that sometime after 7 p.m. the night before, so the night the disappearance happened, he'd been driving south on County Road 6 with his son when he noticed a helmet beside the road, like a motorcycle helmet. So on his way home, they passed this helmet again and they notice it's still there. So he stops the car and he asks his son to like grab the helmet and throw it in the bed of the truck. So he figures maybe this has something to do with what took place because the police had been searching around that area. So he said the the helmet is still in the bed of my truck. Nobody's touched it since my son picked it up. So they, of course, are going to fingerprint his son to eliminate those fingerprints that are on the helmet. But they do bag the helmet as evidence and they did find blood stains on the interior and exterior of the helmet. And they also found latent fingerprints on the helmet that were fingerprints other than that of the farmer's son. Maybe they could find a hair sample too. Oh, that's true. You never like, know, right? I mean, maybe there's DNA sample from within the helmet because you sweat in a helmet. Sweat, you know, it could be hair, could even be like some dry little skin you know, from the, I don't know. Some dandruff? Yeah, some, uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I'm just thinking anything you could possibly get off a helmet would no, be great. No, there's, there's a lot yeah. of stuff you could get <laughs> off of a helmet. And this was great information. It's just complicated now because it was found by somebody else and then returned. So the chain of evidence is kind of like broken and they don't know exactly where it was. So although the helmet could be of great evidence because it was picked up by somebody, it was wonderful that he returned it, but it makes it complicated. Now I'm thinking my bad, my distrust for people is starting to come out. Could this guy be bad and not a good Samaritan? Is he bringing the helmet because it's his helmet? Or is that just, is it because you're from New York? Probably. It's your yeah. massive distrust. I'm not distrust. I am, I'm not really too Okay, trusted. so you're putting Farmer Troy on the list. No, I, I'm only joking. I mean, I don't want to put him on the list. But I mean, what what a crazy turn of events if it was him, his helmet and he brought it in to think that he's helping because he's trying to make it look like he has nothing to do with it. I, I would say that in 2016, the, the knowledge of DNA and what could be found and the fact that there was blood on the helmet and you could get like sweat DNA possibly from inside the helmet. I don't know if somebody would return a helmet if it was them. Yeah, I think the the most shocking thing so far is a lot of the weird items that we're finding. Yeah. You know, like, uh, like I, a fuse I, box, like a, a screwdriver. Yeah, like the fuses, a, you know, um, a screwdriver. It's like all handyman things to fix something. Okay. So, I like that you're putting that together. I mean, yeah. Like, I, 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 hey, think about it. I've done it multiple times in other episodes and it worked out. No, you're right. But, like, I'm thinking, like, okay, well, that's just weird things to find. Who would have so, that stuff on them all the time? Right. My only thing is if, if, like, the tire tracks are from a motorcycle, I think it would be hard, though, to, like, kidnap somebody on a motorcycle. Oh, totally would be. You know what I mean? That's the only thing that doesn't make sense at this moment and in time. And who was but, driving the motorcycle? 
well, yeah, well, that we, we know of so far. Well, I was just gonna say. Well, that was that's a whole other thing. I was thinking that it is weird to only take your girlfriend halfway and uh, turn around. Because I know for me, when I used to walk you out, I would feel bad just not dr- walking you all the way to, to the bottom of the driveway. Yeah. You know what I mean? So uh, to just go halfway, I mean, you're on a motorcycle. You might as well go the whole distance. That's true. But I don't want to get ahead of ourselves here. Okay. So based on what had been found, the agents from the OBI and the detectives from the sheriff's department theorized that some kind of struggle had taken place between Sierra and the abductor or potential murderer. Because the screwdriver was found with only drops of blood on it, they didn't believe that it was a murder weapon or that it was used to assault her because of the lack of blood. Because of the amount of things left at the scene, this, they believed it was evidence of a great struggle. And the fact that the bike was found a few rows into the cornfield made them believe that someone was trying to conceal it. So they believed that Sierra had only been abducted from the scene and not murdered at the scene because there was blood, but not a copious amount of blood that would have led to her death. But what that meant was that the race was on even stronger than before because they knew she met foul play. They know she's been abducted and they now have to find her. They believed, besides the blood, which had been sent in for DNA processing, that their biggest piece of evidence was the tire marks on the other side of the road. They looked like they were from a motorcycle. So a cast was made of the tracks to see if they could be compared to anyone who may pop up as a suspect that also has a motorcycle. And the motorcycle tracks and the returned helmet had them thinking, um of somebody who was driving a motorcycle that did accompany Sierra home on her ride and had been the last person to see her. And that was Josh, her boyfriend. Yep. So as you can imagine, this was incredibly difficult for the family to see. Sierra's parents, her siblings, aunts, uncles, cousins, and her boyfriend all wanted answers. They were hopeful that she was alive and desperate to find her. When the abduction scene was discovered on County Road 6, the family was not allowed through the barricade, but was brought items individually to see what belonged to Sierra. At this point, Sierra had been missing for 12 hours. They hadn't slept, and all the family could think about is searching for her. However, the investigators were not going to let that happen. What they needed was more information from her family. They needed to question Josh because not only had he been the last one to see her, but he'd been on a motorcycle. Josh gave permission to law enforcement to search his house and look over his motorcycle. They had mainly been focused on his bedroom and what he'd been wearing that day. A cast was taken from his motorcycle wheels, but no bloodstains were found anywhere on his bike or the helmet that he would wear, and he was in possession of his helmet. Um, Also, though, in the video on Snapchat, you could see that he's not wearing a helmet while he's driving. Okay. But and I'm guessing that the tire, the tire cast didn't match. The tire cast did not match. Okay. No. So in searching his room, though, they find a pair of brown coveralls that had a very large blood stain on them. However, in the video, he's wearing a T-shirt. He's not wearing brown coveralls. 
He said that that was from when he was hunting and he had to skin a deer from the last hunting season. And it was an old stain because it's the summer. So it's not deer hunting season. So those were the two things collected from their search. The, the cast of the tire, which ended up not being a match, and then the coveralls. Next, Josh is brought in for questioning. He gave a formal written statement of what happened that evening that Sierra came over and what happened on their ride home, um, what happened at the halfway point, and what happened at the search afterwards. He even drew a map that showed the route that he had taken with her and the one that he knew that she would be taking home. Josh willingly gave law enforcement his phone, and throughout the entire time of being questioned, it was evident that the boy was devastated. The results from the overalls came back quite quickly because the blood that was on them was animal blood and not human blood. So at this point in the investigation, the police really felt comfortable excluding Josh as a suspect from any wrongdoing when it came to his girlfriend. Okay, that's good. I mean, look, I mean, I know it's like, well, you're not getting any uh, closer to finding out who did it, but at least you could write this kid off and the family could be a little bit more at ease and not feel awkward around him. You know, I mean, that's important. Yes, I think ruling the closest people out is the best thing to do, even when it comes to family. It's uncomfortable, but those questions have to be asked because they're the ones who are going to be involved in the search and the investigation. And you don't want people who you may think did it be so in tuned with the investigation. Yeah, I didn't think it was him anyway, because I feel like this is something that somebody might have done before or just knows the area way too well. Right. That's just like also when I'm sitting here thinking about that whole gasoline smell and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to put things together like, okay, if you were to abduct somebody on a motorcycle, there would need to be a struggle, which it shows that there must have been one there. Yeah. Is it crazy for my brain to go to a place where could this person have dipped a rag in gasoline and during a struggle put it over her face to make her pass out and that would be so easy for her him to him to put her on the motorcycle and then take off in a rush you know and that would be the the tire mark the burnout tire mark that we got from the motorcycle okay this is also my not knowing anything when it comes to motorcycles, is that easy to do to access gasoline like that? Oh my it? god, yeah. I mean, it, when you sit down on a motorcycle, the cap for the oh, gas right is there. literally right in front of you. If you just take a, if you just take a rag, you could just dip it in the in the. So tank. maybe someone was waiting with it. It could be, and that would yeah. be because, I mean, <clears throat> of course, when a car, a motorcycle, anything accelerates, of course there is. There's going to be a remnants of like a smell of gas, but that goes away pretty quickly. But the even fact if that it's it, like an older motorcycle that like emanates a lot of yeah, sure, gas smell. of course, but it's not going to linger there all the way until police get there to see. Hours it. later, yeah, right. that is interesting. Un- unless like he dipped a rag in there, gasoline was on the ground, like you know, because he did that, the gas got on the ground and it disor- disoriented her. Anyway, and then he put it over her face. Yeah, or something. yeah. That would be the only way to get somebody. To, like, be cooperative. Okay. That's just my guess. Oh, I like that you're thinking. Yeah. That's why you're here. <laughs> I'm, hey, listen, that's, that's why you pay the big bucks. Oh, yeah. Just kidding. After clearing Josh, the investigators knew that they had to get back to work immediately. They had someone that was missing. Sierra was out there. And because of the urgency of the case, 
and because it was glaringly obvious that foul play had taken place, the FBI agreed to get involved in the investigation at the request of local and state law enforcement. They needed people working the case that had worked active abduction cases before. The FBI used a tactic that usually worked for them in this situation. They searched for sexual and violent offenders within the area of the attack and the victim's home. The thought process was, and that if this was the case, then they would need to know who might have encountered Sierra on her way back to her house that had a violent history. It's a good place to start. Because Sierra lived in a rural community, the list wasn't long because the houses, especially because we're talking about a farming community, every property really does have acres and acres of land. So it was a very short list, which was good for them because it meant that they could meet with people more quickly. So on July 21st, not even 48 hours since Sierra had been reported missing, an employee from the Ohio Adult Parole Authority, two FBI agents, and a major from the Fulton County Sheriff's Office went to visit the offenders on the list. The first location they were headed to was what they called a top priority visit. It was the home of James Worley, a past offender. James Worley lived at 10627 County Road 6. County Road 6 was where the abduction site okay, was. Okay, so it would be close. Okay. It's very close to the, uh, within a mile from the abduction site. All right. But before we get into law enforcement's visit to James Worley's house, okay, let's get back to the show. So... The land that James Worley lived on with his mother consisted of one main house, various other barn-like structures that were spread out over the three acres of land that they owned. We know exactly what happened when law enforcement officers and a representative from the parole office went to the door because it was recorded with a body cam. I love those. Uh me too. Those are my favorite. <laughs> Me too. It also makes it feel like, oh my God, this, you actually get to see the tense moments that law enforcement officers have to go through. And you just think, oh my God, the bravery sometimes and the way that they approach and deal with situations and like the courage is something that I couldn't even imagine myself doing. So it's it actually like makes you appreciate what they do and like the depths of depravity that they have to tune into when they deal with some of these people. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is a, a pretty insane. I mean, I, I obviously I haven't seen this, but I've seen other body cam footages and it, it makes it just so real. And like, I don't know, I can't explain it. You almost, you almost can't believe that there are people out there that are a certain way and then what they go through too. I mean, their lives are on the line. So I can just imagine what you're talking about. Oh, it's intense. So when James Worley answered the front door, he was definitely a dominating presence from the beginning. He's a big guy. So Worley seemed to be on the defensive right away, asking who they were and why they were there. They explained who they were, and they stated that they were going around house to house on County Road 6 to ask about any information regarding a missing woman. He was upset immediately. 
Worley had to have known why they were there. He was on a list, a violent offenders list. So occasionally he would be stopped or questioned ever since his first offense back in 1990. And if you had done what James Worley did 26 years prior, you would be nervous that law enforcement was at your door looking for a missing young woman too. Uh Uh-oh. So let me take you back to the 4th of July in 1990 to the neighboring county of Lucas. So Lucas is located to the east of Fulton County. 26-year-old Robin Gardner was riding her bike on a rural road just one mile from her home. Stop. No way. Yes. Okay, continue. Oh, yes. Sorry, I'm sorry. As she was riding along, a pickup truck passed her, something she thought nothing of, because although it was a remote road, she had seen many cars that day because it was the 4th of July, and many people were headed to parties or barbecues, Uh, So when James Worley, who was the man driving that pickup truck, saw Robin riding her bike all alone, he saw an opportunity. So once he got a good distance away from her, he made a U-turn with his truck and started heading back towards Robin, this time approaching her from behind. Just when he got close enough, he swerved the truck and hit her knocking her and her bike into a ditch on the side of the road. Once Robin landed on the ground, she noticed that she had been hit by the same pickup truck that she had just seen headed in the other direction moments ago. And that made her nervous. When she went to stand up, Worley, who had gotten out of the truck at that point, asked her if she was all right. And that instantly made her relax. First, she was nervous because she thought maybe he'd hit her on purpose, but now he's getting out and seeing if she was okay, so it must have been an accident, right? It was not an accident. Worley had said what he did to have that very effect, to make Robin think everything was okay. It was not, because behind his back, Worley was hiding a hammer. The second Robin turned back around to pick up her bike, he hit her over the back of the head with a hammer. He then put her in a stranglehold. He dropped the hammer, and now he was holding a screwdriver. Oh, come on. No way. The screwdriver that he'd been holding in his pocket. He had the screwdriver pressed against her throat, and his mouth is right next to her ear when he said, Get in the truck, or I'm going to kill you. She struggled against him as much as she could, But because of his size, he easily overpowered her. He'd been able to get her into his truck, and she was attempting to get away from him while he was trying to put handcuffs on her wrists behind her back. She kept trying to wiggle away from him or kick him. And at that very moment, a motorcycle passed by and noticed the commotion. The man on the motorcycle stopped to get a closer look at what was happening. Worley knew he had to get a move on. The cuff was only around one wrist, but that would have to do. He had to leave or he would get caught. So he slammed the passenger door and was headed around the truck to get to the driver's side. But Robin, seeing an opportunity, the only one she may have, 
scrambled across the truck as fast as she could and jumped out of the driver's side door before Worley could even get to her. She ran to the man on the motorcycle, her arms flagging him down even though he'd already stopped. He was confused about what was happening, and as she got closer, she yelled to him, Please help me, this guy's going to kill me. And Worley yelled back to the man because he was close behind her, Don't listen to her. She's crazy. The man took a look at each of them, and he told Robin to get on. He immediately started the bike up, and they were out of there. She got away. That is insane. That is insane. What a freaking story. But see, but now this, yeah, like this begs the question, are we dealing with the same guy here? Because there are a lot of similarities here. Yes. Like almost every, almost everything. Almost everything. <laughs> almost everything. Um, so the Good Samaritan drove her to her house, which is really only a mile up the road, which well, I would even be terrified to go a mile up the road because he could definitely be following you guys. I would have taken her right to a hospital after yeah, getting hit by a car. Yeah, or a police station. Or a police station, either or. Well, he is not even aware of, of what what's happened. going on. Yeah. She is definitely, she's bleeding profusely from her head because of the hammer hit. So he drives her to her house. Robin, who just suffered a skull fracture and a concussion from the attack, um, calls the police. And do you know what's crazy? James Worley never left the scene. What? I guess he knew what was going to happen, so he just stayed there. Or just there. stayed put? Yeah. Um, so she was able to identify him as the man that attacked her, and he was arrested. Um, for the assault and attempted abduction, he was sentenced to 10 years, but he only served a little under three years. Okay. I know we're just still at the beginning of the story here pretty much, but Sounds I, just, familiar. I just have to say, like, I think that that is such an injustice. You, I cannot even begin to tell you. I think if, I mean, you, you're dealing with violent crimes, violent offenders. I don't believe it should be like good behavior or only uh, this amount of time served. It should just be if 10 years is your sentence, 10 years is your sentence. Yeah. I mean, I don't. Be, I don't to believe serve that. A th- less than a third is. Yeah, is... I'm sorry. Like, I mean, people might think think th- differently, and that's totally fine. But I think if you're a violent offender, you should not get any kind of break. Your sentence is your sentence. Because if th- look, this guy's coming out, and he's a he's possible. This guy might possibly be the guy that we're looking for. Yeah. So they do repeat, and it's scary. It's interesting that it's even the same month. Very odd. But we might be dealing with a very bad and odd guy, you know? Well, in addition to the violent offense, he was also convicted of illegally manufacturing drugs and possession of weapons while under a disability, meaning he's not allowed to own weapons, but he had them. Uh, He also served prison time for that. So he had two prison sentences. I guarantee he served more time for that than he did the violent assault. (laughs) Probably. So now let's get back to July 21st, 2016. And now we know why law enforcement, when they saw Worley's name and the quick synopsis of what he had been charged with, coupled with the fact that he lived less than a mile from the abduction site, they like now you're like, oh, that's why they went there first. Yeah, I mean, that's a good way to do it, right? What a freaking suspect. But if anything, that's so, that's this is why registries are so good because you know No, there was no registry. Oh. 
they had to go look this up. Oh. If the FBI never, the FBI suggested that they do this. Okay, well, that was still a good tip, though. I'm yes. sorry. I thought it was a registry. We'll get into that later. I didn't later. realize how much work went into that then. Yes. Because that means they had to comb through every single person that's been arrested in the yep. area. Yep. Okay. And Worley knew just as much why they were there as they did. Like, he's like, you're telling me you're walking around talking to everybody, which really potentially could be true because he does live on the road that this took place on. But he's like, no, I know why you're here. And he's immediately, his defenses are up and this is a scary guy. And it's threatening. Oh, yeah. And that was why the next thing out of his mouth after they explained why they were there was, so you're going to tell me that this is all under the guise of you just checking every household and you're not here for any particular reason? Because they believed he was a strong contender, the agents with the FBI let Worley know that they really were just checking everywhere. They said, there's a young lady missing and we're just trying to look. And with a laugh, Worley said, I'm not out here killing chicks, dude. And then there was a pause. Because they only said she was missing. Ooh. Oh, my God. And they let Worley continue. I don't have a relationship. I'm trying to get into one. I started online a little bit right now, but she's she's been out here. And guess what? She went home alive. I mean, I would say that's not the thing to say to police when they come to your house. Probably not. But I don't think this guy is actually sane. So, no. I mean... No. I would definitely be on my toes with this guy. Well, as you're you're kind of watching this footage of, of it taking place, you're like, oh, shit. These guys are in a pretty dangerous situation, but they she might be there. I mean, think about it. She could be there. She, well, it kind of it, it goes to what I said before. If there's three acres of property and there are other structures on the property, yes, there are. could she be there, number one? Number two, I mean, this guy is dangerous. And think about his charges. He's hurt people before, and he had guns and wasn't supposed to. So when you're a cop going to a house like that, you have no idea what to expect. Also, the agent's kind of being like, hey, listen, we're here just to, we're going door to door. That's to kind of defuse him. So that way he doesn't think that they are only on him. Yeah, they're trying to placate him. They want to keep him as calm as possible because the more calm he is, the more likely he is to let them in. And that's what they want to do. They want to get into as many places as possible so they could search for Sierra. Also, I think that if she is alive, then you don't want to do anything that would provoke him to go kill her. No. If she is being held somewhere. Exactly. They want to make it look like we don't suspect you. Right. So they asked him if anyone was in the house with him. And he said, my mother. Only your mother? And he said, yes. They asked if he would mind if they looked around the house. A nervousness spilled over him, and he asked what part of the house they wanted to look at. They told him that they wanted to look through the whole thing. As Worley brought the four of them in, the inside of the house was visible. It was a mess. As he took them through the house, Worley just kept talking. He wouldn't stop. So the one FBI agent tried to keep him talking while the other three remained quiet and looked for any possible signs that Sierra had been there. He can be heard on the recording saying, this is my room, no dead bodies here. 
here's the laundry room. Good luck with that. As it showed like this crazy laundry room with like all this laundry piled everywhere. And as he continued to walk through the house, he said, I haven't killed anybody. I haven't raped anybody. So let's get that straight. It was like he was getting agitated. So to calm him down, the agent said, well, believe it or not, you being as cooperative as you are is always really good. It's a great sign. And he turned around and said, yeah, right, dude. If I was a psychopath, I'd have had your gun and shot you all. And the agent said to him, I think I'm quicker than that. And he said, I don't think so. So the agent asked, have you ever killed anyone before? And he replied, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, sir, that's not cool that you said that to me. Like, basically said that he was faster than him. Okay, like, what does it matter? No, but it's like... Yeah, I think if anything, this is just showing how unhinged he is yes, all, he's saying, like, all the time. <laughs> he's saying to these FBI agents, if I'm a psychopath, I would have grabbed your gun and shot you all. Like, that's what you're saying? I think it's. Just, I think at this point... He's hiding something, and he's trying to say anything to divert their attention. Like he thinks yeah. he's pulling one over. I think he thinks that that's what he's doing. Yeah. So once they had completed the search of the home, the agents and law enforcement officers sat down to ask James Worley some questions about July 19th. They told him that it was just routine. In retrospect, all of the people that were there that day said that there was something very off with James Worley. In a direct quote from one of the FBI agents, he said, his demeanor screamed danger. But there they were, sitting there with him in a filthy living room, trying to get as much information out of him as possible, trying to keep him calm because they needed to know where Sierra was. And they had a feeling that this was the guy. So the more he spoke, the more they knew it was him. Because... What was supposed to be just a few questions regarding his alibi turned into a 90-minute conversation that it consisted of Worley trying to cover his tracks. You know, it is interesting, though, that even, like, if we just take a step backwards for a second and just say, okay, like, this guy, the first time he committed a crime, he didn't even look to get away, right? And... He could have. I mean, I'm sure they would have gotten him, but he could have walked away, drove away and, and tried to get some distance. Right. But he didn't. And then it's like, okay, buddy, you know you don't like police based on what you've been put away for. Obviously, you're not, you know, too fond of them. So why are you not going to say, hey, you know what? Um, I want you guys to get a warrant because I'm not letting you in. Like, why not be... Like, why not push back? If you're hiding something and acting strange and doing all these things, wouldn't the first thing to do would be to stonewall them right at the beginning and say, get a warrant? You're doing what you just told me not to do. Rationalize what this guy's thinking. I, I truly believe that he thinks in this moment that he is smarter than them and that he is covering his tracks. Yeah, it's just bizarre, like, that he would just let them in like that. Well, wait till you hear what he says to them. Okay. Are you ready? It's like he wants to get caught if he Mm. did it. According to the official court documents and recorded conversation, Worley gave the following account of the late afternoon and night of July 19th. He stated that around 545 or 6 p.m., he left his house on his motorcycle. (laughs) Oh, my God. 
I can't. But the motorcycle had stalled when he was driving on County Road U. Now, County Road U is a row which cross-sects with County Road 6. He said that he was able to get it running again, but it stalled again on County Road 6. And he was asked where he stopped. He said, I don't know, near a cornfield. All of County Road 6 is freaking cornfield, dude. So he said that when he stopped, he saw on the other side of the road that there were two bikes, a blue one and a gray one. So I think he's even getting the colors of the bikes wrong. He's not even remembering that uh, Sierra's bike was purple, not blue. So he's trying to insinuate that there was a gray bike there so that she was with somebody else in the cornfield. That's what he's trying to establish. Sure. Initially, he said his plan was going to be to hide his bike within the cornfield on the other side of the road and then cross the street, get on one of the bikes and ride home because he was so close to his house. However, after some thought, he decided not to do that because he didn't want to steal someone's bike. So instead, he got back on his motorcycle and he alternated between like pushing his bike and getting it started and then it stalling again until he got home. Now, he said he didn't get back to his house until 10 p.m. and that he didn't see anyone the whole time his bike had stalled to when he got back to his house. This is the worst alibi of all time. Oh, John, wait. He also said that he lost some belongings when the motorcycle broke down. Oh, my God. (laughs) When asked what those belongings were, he volunteered that he lost his helmet, fuses, a screwdriver, and sunglasses. (laughs) I'm sorry. I I can't. Okay. Okay. And throughout the whole interview, he said he was innocent of anything about a dozen times. However, he did ask the police if they had any evidence against him. He said, are there any fingerprints? Are there any of my fingerprints anywhere? And um, they said, we haven't done any fingerprinting yet. Like, they're just trying to placate him. They don't want him to think we have anything on you, even though he just gave them everything. And then he said, well, if you find the helmet, could I get it back? You have got to be kidding me. I'm not. I'm not making any And by the way, this all makes sense now. Okay. I understand why we found fuses there on on site. You want to know why? Because he was stalling out because he had a bad battery. Because when you have a bad battery, it blows the fuse. That's what his quote unquote stall was. The battery probably didn't have enough juice. It shorted out the fuse and then he had to replace it. I don't even think he stalled. Probably not, but I'm just saying, if he had a box of fuses on, that's probably it, why. The motorcycle, yeah, because sometimes, they always say good lies, not saying this is a good lie, but good lies ha- have some truth within them. So maybe sometimes his motorcycle does stall, which is why he had the fuses with him, and now he's using this as an excuse, because yeah. if they were to look at the bike, they could say, okay, th- it stalls. Instead of just buying a new battery, and you would have to do that. But anyway... Yeah, this this is ridiculous. I, I can't even believe it. He's setting himself up. Like, like I, I don't want to be, I don't want to say the wrong thing here, but I feel like, are, are we dealing with someone who really believes that they're smarter than police? Or is he, is he might maybe like, maybe a little low functioning? Like, what's going on? Because it doesn't seem normal for someone to say all that and get themselves wrapped up because... 
Well, everything points to him now. You know what? This makes me. This is almost a little scary, right? Because when I initially heard this interview with the police, I was thinking, what is giving this man all of this confidence? And then I thought, okay, the last time he was arrested for a crime like this was 1990. Yeah, he had like the drug and the weapons possession charges later on. But has he been doing this for 26 years and getting away with it? Well, I think if anything, he has the means to do it. Think about it. I mean, he's right off of a highway. So there's... Um, it's not a highway. It's like... Oh, oh whatever. A road. Yeah. He, so he lives off of, of a main road. So, I mean, the potentiality that they will be victims either visiting through the town or live in the town are kind of high. And he has the means of getting away quickly because he lives right there on the, off the road. And he has the ability to hold people hostage if, well, you know, his mother probably has no idea what's going on on a property. So he has the means. Yeah, I think you bring up really good points about him definitely having the means to, to do what he wants to do. And I don't believe that someone does something as egregious as he has done, gets in trouble, gets out of prison, and then never does it again. I just don't believe that. And it looks like he's done it again. So I think that I want to believe that he has done this in some capacity after the first time that he's been caught and he's gotten a little bit better at it. Right. But maybe he didn't expect such a struggle, like a fight from our, our victim here. I and maybe agree. that's why everything has been strewn about all over the all over the street. Right. Yeah. Okay, guys, let's get back to the show. So having all of the information they could collect and not wanting to push him, the law enforcement officers and agents left. When they returned to the headquarters to discuss their findings with the task force that had been put together, an Ohio State Bureau of Criminal Investigation agent suggested that they just go right back to the property and ask him if they could search the other dwellings that he had because there were a number of large barns and they were thinking, could she be in one of those structures? Like you said, it's it's a three-acre property. That's big. Yeah, it is. And like I said, she like the mother doesn't know what's going on. So I'm sure she's not going into these areas of the property, so... Well, I'm sure he's keeping them really secretive. Yeah. And the agent was right. There was two barns on the property, a machine shop and a trailer in addition to the home. So they need to get there and search. So just hours after they left, the two FBI agents that had been there before returned. And now they had with them um, two agents from the Ohio BCI. They told Worley who seemed to be very agitated when they returned, that they had found his helmet. And they said the missing young lady's blood had been found on the helmet. In fact, all the blood samples at this point had come back, and they all belonged to Sierra. Okay. I mean, this guy, I mean, we got him, I think, at this point. Someone has her blood on it. Why? You know? Exactly. (laughs) So they then asked him if they would be able to search the other dwellings on his property. They said that if he didn't, that that would be okay and they could return with a warrant. He told them, as he started walking them over to the closest building, the machine shop, no, I get it. I'm the kind of guy that wants to get it done and I want to get you out of my hair. The agent who was recording the interaction through a body cam again said, well, you're doing a good job so far. 
Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for all the information that you're giving us yeah. to close this case. <laughs> so in the machine shop, he said that this was the location where he did some work in. He said he would work on his motorcycle and sometimes do things for other people. Everything seemed to be in order at the shop. They searched the first barn and everything seemed to be okay. It was a bit of a mess and it was used mainly for storage. One of the FBI agents would later say that as they approached the north barn, the second location, um, Worley's body language and demeanor completely changed. He became very anxious. And it was true. It seemed that every step they took further into the barn, Worley seemed to get more anxious. And the agents were now on high alert. Now, this barn was very different from the other barn. It was neat and organized. There were bales of hay lining one wall and kind of all over the floor. Like, so hay basically took up half of the barn. But it was organized, if that makes sense. Like the bales were organized. Right, of course. I will tell you, fun fact, I don't know if anybody has ever been on a farm before or ever been near hay bales. I used to have to always do that by you know i used to have to help the local farmer where i lived in goshen uh yeah and um yeah so i would help him with hay bales but i will tell you that in a barn where all the hay bales are stacked up against the walls it is like the perfect insulator to hear nothing on the outside we'll get into that so i just i'm I'm just throwing that out there Mm -hmm. um that is something that i think helps with sound it totally does and on the floor there was sand Sand. Okay. Yeah. So one of the agents commented that the barn was really clean and it looked like the sand had just been raked through. Worley said that he had been prepping the barn because he was thinking about getting a calf and raising rabbits. So he had to get everything in order first. The agents were thinking that he raked it over to conceal the fact that there had been a recent struggle in the barn. Or is using the sand to soak up whatever blood is on the floor. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just something that I'm thinking about. Yeah, to pick it up so it doesn't get right, onto the Right, and that's why you floor. would break it. So that way it, it gets absorbed and you can kind of, um, I don't pick want to it hide it, but you can pick it up. Yeah. 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 Worley, as anxious as ever, told him that he was getting hot. Let's get out of here. It's fucking hot, he said. Like, And he just keeps repeating that. Like, let's just get out of here. It's hot, it's hot, it's hot. <laughs> okay. And the agents, instead of leaving, start moving the bales of hay. Oh, my God. Okay. As they pulled the hay aside, a green wooden crate was revealed. It was covered up with chicken wire. Oh, that's just shit I use for storage, he said. But there's nothing in there. Come over here. There's another section that I could show you. But the agents had already opened the crate. If Sierra was there, they were desperate to find her, and they weren't going to let Worley stop them. As the agent reached inside, he started pulling out Ziploc bags. He started handing them to the other agents, and then eventually, because there were so many, he started throwing them on the ground. In each bag, there were pieces of lingerie. Each of them were labeled. Whoa, 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 whoa. Is this like a memento uh, box? So one Ziploc bag said boy shorts, another lace street dress, lace bra and panties, black lace dress, 
dress and thong, pink lace teddy, and it went on and on and on. Who are all of these undergarments for, they asked. That's just stuff I give out to girls I'm seeing, he said. I just store it out here, that's all. I buy them for the women I see. And now he's very agitated. He started saying that just because they found that stuff, now they're going to start pinning this murder on him. He keeps saying murder. Now you're going to pin this murder on me. Just because I've been arrested before, now you're going to pin this on me. It's what he kept saying. Despite his accusations, the agents kept looking through the crate. Finally, they come across something that they believe can be a piece of evidence. As Worley was talking, he said all the lingerie was new and never worn before, but they just came across a pair of pink bathing suit bottoms that had two deep red stains in them, one where the panty liner is and the other that's on the back. So as soon as the bathing suit bottoms had been found, Another agent started pulling up bales of hay in the other section of the barn. Like, they are desperately looking for this girl. They're like, she's got to be here. And and what the hell did we just find? This barn from hell. It's like it's like torture room. So they keep pulling up hay. And beneath hay on the other side of the barn, they find a, a piece of plywood. And they lift up. They move the plywood and they find an inflated air mattress. No. And they ask Worley if they're going to find Sierra's DNA on the mattress. And he protested and told them they're not. They're not going to find anything on that mattress. Only my mother's DNA, he said. What? Okay. Yeah. But what? <laughs> Hold on. What happened? That's even more weird. <laughs> okay. So Worley is arrested right there. They're like, we have probable cause to continue searching this, your property, all of your properties, and we don't want you to be here while we're doing it. And we need to bring you down to the station because we have more questions for you. So he gets arrested on the spot. And as he's being brought back to the local station by the BCI agents, the FBI agents are calling in more people to search the entire property because... Sierra's got to be here, and hopefully she's still alive. Are you ready for the results of their their search of the property? Yes, I am. Okay. So we're going to start with the North Barn. That's where they had initially been searching. That's where they found both the green crate and the air mattress. Inside the green crate, beneath all the Ziploc lingerie pieces, they found adult diapers, a bag containing bondage clothing and restraints, including chains and whips, a roll of white clothesline, latex gloves, a piece of duct tape with straw and hair stuck to it. So that immediately gets bagged as evidence whose hair is this. Um, A brown rope, white socks, a bag for storing the air mattress, and a pink sex toy. The investigators and crime scene analysts then completely clear the barn of hay. It was someone's job to go through the hay, but nothing was found within it. But what was in the barn was terrifying. 
On the floor, they found more of the same things that had been in the green crate beneath the hay. A roll of black duct tape, a piece of white rope, a trash bag containing adult diapers. Then, beneath a large, heavy piece of plywood, they, they lift up the plywood and they find that it's like kind of hard to explain he had cut out the floor of the barn dug a hole and inside that hole he put a industrial sized freezer that had a lock so like if you lifted the plywood it was like freezer in the ground right so it's pretty much a f- basement pretty yes. much yeah like a structure <clears throat> that he could just close and lock and on the top of the freezer there had been air holes put so he could put a human being into the into the freezer. You are joking around with me right now. No. I mean that has nothing to joke about, but I are you are you pulling my leg? Isn't that crazy? That is terrifying. So they find it and and it's locked and they're thinking she's inside. She's inside. Okay. So they're opening it as fast as they can. Nothing. She's not inside. But what is inside is carpet. He has lined the this. It's obviously not plugged in. It's not cold, not a freezer, but it's it's a freezer box. He's lined it completely with carpet to soundproof it. Yeah, this guy knows what he was doing. And this is this is terrifying. This is not this guy's first attempt. No, there are things in here that kind of prove my theory correct, because this is this is a torture chamber. It is, and the carpet is soaking wet and smells like bleach. So he had just cleaned it. What the literal hell? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Okay. All right. So within the shop, because they obviously search the other dwellings on the property as well, within the shop, they find that he has more adult diapers, handcuff keys, and two sets of handcuffs. He has zip ties and a bottle of bleach that was half full. Another thing they do is they take casts from the tires of his two pickup trucks because he also owns two pickup trucks. And within the pickup trucks, they found pepper spray, a black ski mask, duct tape, zip ties, and rope. Yeah, this guy was ready to go. Yeah, I think at all times. Yeah. Which shows that maybe seeing Sierra was a crime of opportunity. You know, I'm actually thinking something else. Here, I, I, there's times I like I, I feel like I sh- I shouldn't just guess at these things, but I think I need to. So it both happened in July. Both times happened in July. He was unsuccessful with the victim that got away. Yeah, this first one. Is it possible that he just saw her and was like, you know what? I'm making right on what I didn't finish the first time. Twenty six years ago. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's a potentiality for this victim. For this specific, I'm, t- I'm talking, I'm being specific. But, but there like, was definitely a premeditation when it comes to digging a hole in your barn and putting a human-sized freezer that you line with carpet and leave air well, holes Well, that was definitely done before this. Uh, yeah, that takes longer than a day. That's what I'm saying. So, I mean, like, I, I know that he's done this before, but I'm thinking, is there more to this? Like, he saw her there. 
It was kind of the same MO, a girl, a, a, you know, a woman on a bicycle. Alone, alone. in a rural road. It was almost like he was making right on what it, he was trying to carry it out again. It's so scary. Yeah. Like he was thinking, oh, the first one got me, but this one won't. Correct. Yeah. Ugh. But then why does he have that stuff? Well, I think it's because he's probably done this to other women before. So meanwhile, back at the station, they're trying to get more information out of James Worley. He was still denying that he had any involvement in what happened to Sierra. He was sticking to his story of what took place that day, despite the fact that they actually had video footage outside of Evergreen High School, where Sierra actually graduated from high school. Um, the school was located on County Road 6, and but it's located between the abduction site and where he lived. And he is seen going back and forth on his motorcycle and he's not coming back at 10 p.m. He's coming back a lot earlier. So what the police are going to theorize happened was that something happened with him and Sierra while he was on his motorcycle. He was able to subdue her, go home and get his pickup truck and come back. Okay. Okay. So, and then they asked him about the barn. What was that setup? What were you doing? He claimed that he was really into pornography and that him and a buddy were planning on starting making their own porn films or producing or directing porn films within his barn and that they were going to like basically start a production company. And that's what all of that stuff was. That's what the clothes were. That's what the air mattress was set up for. That's, that is a big lie. Yeah. <laughs> um, he said that the freezer container, that that was for his weed. That's where he kept his weed. Yeah, you know, you got to insulate and let the weed breathe, I guess. Yeah, with air holes. Yeah, you know? yeah, you know, you, you, don't, you don't use water to, to water and them. And clean you use it with bleach. bleach. Yeah. yeah. And that was all he would really say. I mean, he besides him saying that, he would say, I never killed or raped anybody. I never encountered Sierra. And, you know, directly from his interview, he said, dude, I did not have or stash... Dude, I don't have her stashed, hidden, or buried. Whatever you're thinking, I have no answers for you. If I was going to attack a chick, I wouldn't have left. And I wouldn't be have done it around the block. I wouldn't have left any evidence whatsoever to be found. I feel like this guy's just getting deeper and deeper um, <laughs> into a hole here. You know, at this point, we might as well put him in the freezer box. Uh, yeah. uh, I mean, come on now. I mean, there's no way that it's not this guy. Right. And it's true. There's evidence. There's blood on the bathing suit bottoms. They knew they w- that would come back as a match for Sierra. And they hoped that the samples from that they took from the freezer and the air mattress would, would also reveal that Sierra was there. All they had to do was show that there was her DNA in his barn. That's really all they needed. And the reason they knew that that blood would come back from the bathing suit bottoms as hers was because the cast that they had taken of his pickup trucks, 
the cast matched one of his green pickup truck. Oh, so that mark wasn't a motorcycle. No, it was a motorcycle, oh. but there was more track marks on the side of, on the other side of the road Got where it. the abduction site was. So he must have subdued her, hid her in the corn, went back and got her with his pickup truck. Okay. So he his motorcycle cast that was at the scene and his pickup truck was at the scene. And all of his stuff was at the scene with her blood on it. Yeah, I mean that he said he was missing. Correct. But he wants that helmet back, though. He wants the helmet back. Sierra's parents were told by law enforcement that they believed that they had the man responsible and that the search was continuing. But now they at least had a direction to go in. Agents from the Ohio BCI and other sheriff's department officers contacted the media to get the message out about the search for Sierra. They encouraged farmers to search their properties for any signs of disturbances, because Sierra must be close by. And people from the community did go out and search. One man, the day after Worley had been arrested on July 22nd, and three days after Sierra had gone missing, noticed an area of disturbance in a cornfield on the east side of County Road 7. He said that he had seen drag marks in the dirt, and about 20 to 25 yards into the cornfield, he saw what looked like a pile of dirt that had been freshly dug, and near it were yellowish latex gloves. This find brought investigators to the site. They bagged the glove as evidence, but did not find anything in the freshly dug hole. However, because there something had been found in the area, they searched the whole area of County Road 7. And later in the day, on the other side of the road, the investigators did locate what looked like another burial site, where three to four feet of corn had been dug up. And as they began to excavate the site, they began to smell the remains of a human body. They had found 20-year-old Sierra Joggin. Her wrists were handcuffed behind her back, her ankles bound together with duct tape, and her feet bound to her hands with rope. She'd been hogtied. She'd been discovered lying on her stomach with her head turned to the side. A rubber cone-shaped dog toy had been forced into her mouth and had been held in place with a shoelace that was tied at the back of her head. It had been used to gag her. She had straw in her hair and she was dressed in a lace bra and adult diaper. This was definitely at the barn. 100%. I don't even know what to say. That bothers me so much it's because, so it, you know, it's just like, it's, it's, God knows what she went through in that barn. I know. And her last moments in this world were like that. Yeah. Because of this guy. That is crazy. The following are the results of an autopsy that was completed two days after the discovery of the body. Sierra had suffered a head wound to the right side of her forehead that would have caused significant bleeding. There was a hairline fracture on her skull at the left occipital bone. There were also several contusions along the outer left leg. When asked during the trial, the doctor who performed the autopsy said the wound on her forehead could have been caused by her head hitting the pavement or a helmet hitting her head. The doctor went on to testify that she measured Sierra's oral cavity 
And the dog toy um, that had been found was the same size. So it blocked her breathing. After removing the dog toy, she noted that the upper left medial incisor was broken, and she reasoned with a degree of scientific certainty that Joggin's tooth could have been broken by the dog toy when it was inserted into her mouth because her mouth was the same size as the dog toy. It filled her entire oral cavity and completely cut off her ability to breathe. She testified that there would have been visible and or audible signs that Sierra had been in distress while she struggled to breathe with the toy in her mouth. Her death was caused by asphyxia due to a mechanical obstruction of her mouth and would have occurred within 10 minutes. It took 10 minutes for her to die. That's horrible. That is a torturous way to die. Yeah. It's, oh my gosh, this that's crazy. You know, the, the imagery that I'm getting, the pictures that I'm getting, it's just really hard to, to, to hear because it's like this 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 woman did nothing wrong. And, and, and just what we know of she was him. She just drive, riding home on her bike. Yeah. That's all she's trying to do. And you got this guy, he has this like weird torture dungeon. It's, it's just crazy. Yeah. I, and I'm telling you, there's no way... That she's the only one. They there has to be others. This is too complex to be one time or two times. I completely agree with you. It's I scary. I really do. Um, but there's nobody else that they find. Well, you know, and yeah, you know, it's going to be hard to say. Um, I think that he had plans to keep her and torture her. Based on everything that he had in that green crate, I think he was inexperienced. I don't want to say anyone could, you want anyone to ever be experienced in this, but he didn't think shoving that toy in her mouth would kill her. I think he put the toy in her mouth and put her in the freezer box and left. And then when he came back, she passed away. That's a possibility. It is. Because that's what I think happened. Yeah. Because I think his plans were horrible, and I know she died a horrible death, but I know what he wanted to do in addition to what he did is even worse. I would have to agree with you. I just feel so bad for the family here and and her especially. Yeah. This is crazy. I know. This is really hard. Within a week, the DNA results came back. The glove that had been found across from the burial site had both Sierra and James Worley's DNA on them. The hair on the duct tape piece on the barn belonged to Sierra, and it had been her blood on the pink bathing suit bottoms. Sierra's DNA had also been found on the air mattress. They had him. They had his DNA at both sites and her DNA at both sites, and his vehicles were at the site as well. They also had proof from Worley's computer that he had purchased all the lingerie in the Ziploc bags, and that he visited porn sites and watched violent pornographic films titled, well, let's just say it involved everything that he had done or planned to do to her. Very, very violent films. And the other evidence was that the key that would have unlocked the handcuff that were on her her wrist was on his keychain. (laughs) Unbelievable. 
and he had various scratches and bruises on his arms, shoulders, and neck from her fighting. James Worley was charged with aggravated murder, first-degree kidnapping, second-degree felony assault, fifth-degree possession of criminal tools, third-degree tampering with evidence, and owning a weapon under disability. The trial took place in 2018. The theory that the prosecution gave using all of the evidence they had was that Worley had seen Sierra riding her bike. He drove past her on his motorcycle, and then he must have stopped and waited for her. From there, they say that he hit her with his helmet, that she was trying to pass. Um, so, like, he had stopped the motorcycle, and he must have looked innocent like he was fixing his bike, but then when she passed, he must have got her with his helmet, and that was why she was hit on the, the her forehead. Then a struggle ensued which caused her to bleed all, all over everything. He got her into the cornfield, tied her up, which meant that he had to have brought rope with him, meaning he, this was always a premeditated thing that he was always waiting to do. Um, he tied her up and then he went and brought his motorcycle back to his house. He got his green pickup truck, went back to get her, and then... And we don't know what happened in that barn, but we know her DNA was on the mattress, the blood on the bathing suit bottoms. And you can speculate based on the fact that um, he had bleached the freezer that at some point she was in the freezer. And again, that was only my speculation that I don't think he intended for her to kind of to, to die that way. I think that he was a sick, sadistic man that had more things that he wanted to do and that she had died unexpectedly from the dog toy being inserted into her mouth. And we don't really know what happened. We just know that she, she died. And that was most likely in the barn. Then he bleached the freezer and he buried her on County Road 7 in the cornfields. The prosecution brought Robin Gardner in as a witness to testify about her encounter with James Worley on the 4th of July, 1990. And it was, as you know, strikingly similar to what happened to Sierra. For his defense, Worley's team stuck with his original story about the motorcycle stalling and someone else having committed the crime. He called two witnesses, one confirming that the helmet was his, which really proved nothing and didn't truly make sense, and another friend that Worley had since high school who testified that his motorcycle did stall a lot. Upon cross-examination, the man admitted that he smoked pot and watched violent S&M porn with Worley and that the two of them were the ones that were thinking about creating a porn studio together. Wow. Wow. Such great company. Yeah. You know, that that must be. Ew. Ugh. So gross. Gross. The jury found him guilty of all of the charges I listed above, and they recommended a sentence of death because Ohio has the death penalty. The court accepted this and sentenced James Worley to death for what he had done to Sierra Joggin. He also received another 25 years and 11 months for the offenses for which he could not receive the death penalty. Worley's execution had been scheduled for May of 2025, 
but in September of 2021, he received a stay of execution as his appeal process was still taking place. He was appealing because he and his new lawyers believed that the testimony of Robin Gardner should have never been allowed. The Ohio Supreme Court denied this appeal in December of 2021. His execution date still stands. I mean, good. I, I mean, look, I'm, I'm not too privy on all the rules in the court systems, but I understand that maybe it shouldn't have been used or, you know, whether, you know, whether or not it should have been used. But listen, we, we know the guy did it. it. It's not this isn't like a mystery. And he was just one suspect that they had maybe some shoddy evidence on this guy. There was everything was pointing in his direction. Everything. Even if this guy didn't do what happened in 1990, mm-hmm. everything points to him anyway. Right. So it really doesn't matter. Like, you, like why even appeal? I, I get what you're saying. There is, It is so obvious that you did this. Yeah. I mean, it really is. Well, he could get a new trial. Well, you know, and if that happens, they're going to find him guilty well, again. Well, it can't. The Ohio Supreme Court. I mean, oh, he good. could take it federally. He has one more. But as of right now, the date stands. Okay. But he has one more. He has his federal opportunity. So the community of Delta, Ohio, mourned the loss of a truly beautiful young woman with a bright future ahead of her. And they did their best to rally around the Joggin family. According to the Village Reporter, on October 2nd, 2016, the Evergreen School District hosted a Joggin for Joggin 5K run to raise money for Sierra Joggin Memorial Scholarship Fund and to ask for support for Violent Offender Registry Bill, like you talked about, being constructed by Ohio legislators. So the event officials really expected about 300 participants, but they were forced to limit the number to 1,600 because so many people showed up to support. That's really nice. Sierra's family is truly amazing. Her mother and her aunt established a nonprofit organization entitled Justice for Sierra. They work hard to ensure that her beautiful spirit will live on through the work they have done to educate the community and change laws that I am sure have and will save lives. They created the Sierra Strong for the Community, where they teach young people kids ages 6 to 16 self-awareness and self-defense training, providing them with laminated kid print IDs that have their photo and fingerprint and vitals to help when it comes to missing children. I did that when I was in elementary school because the Megan Kanka murder took place when I was in elementary school. Um, and I remember the, the police department, the town police department coming in and fingerprinting all of us and taking our pictures and we got the laminated card. So, and your parents hold it. So if you ever go missing, they give that to the police and it has a recent picture and I mean, that's, that's pretty good. It's sad, but it's, it's, it's useful because you're not. You're not thinking, but it has everything the police need and you don't have to have that conversation with them. It's your weight, it's your height, it's your eye color, it's your hair color. I mean, that is definitely a a good idea. So Josh also assisted with these classes, these self-defense classes. So he's also was involved 
I don't know if he still is, but involved in the, the organization. They also provide curriculum for all interested schools to integrate into their classes if they choose to. And in December of 2018, they helped get Sierra's law passed. With a unanimous vote of 85 to 0 in the Ohio House, the law was created that there was now a violent offenders database used by law enforcement and everyday citizens to find out where violent offenders live in their community and to protect their families. They also have three annual scholarships, as they state on their justiceforsierra.org website, to celebrate Sierra's lasting legacy in their community and to ensure that she continues to make a difference for many generations to come. Um, we'll have the link to that website, um, the justiceforsierra.org, in the show notes, and you can look at all of the amazing things that they've done. And I just think that that law being passed is is important. I think it goes beyond just, I know we have a sex offender registry, but the violent offender registry is also something important to have. Yeah, I, I think that, like, I think we should have that. I think that should be something that is done from state to state. It should be implemented, like, tomorrow. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, look, it, you know, just like if they take somebody that is up for, um, par- uh, parole and they have the kind of sit down to uh, to kind of gauge where they are right and to see if they should could be put back into the world right they should that kind of there should be a screening for that okay well will this guy or woman repeat you know a violent um kind of crime and if so they get put on the registry it's right. that simple it's like we really do need to try to stop future things like this from happening and what better way than having a database where you can go in and look and connect things if someone's missing and there's someone that is uh that has been right how convenient is that you know where this person lives let's go check it out and even if the fbi isn't involved in your investigation you have these resources at hand that they would have and i and i think that if you're on that list i'm sorry like I, i you know i don't you know obviously you're gonna you well, know, I don't think they're listening to True Grandpa. No, I know. I'm just no, 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 no. no I was going to say, I'm sorry, but like your rights are going to be a little bit infringed upon because you are on a registry of some sort. And well, when you're not a con- a helpful contributing member to society, you can't expect to have the same rights as a helpful contributing member to society. Right. That's why I was saying not yeah. not saying sorry. I know. I know. You know, what, I know I mean. what you meant. I was. Just <laughs> I wasn't done with my you. thought there, but um. But yeah, I think that it should be done. That's really all I have to say about the matter. It, you don't want this to happen again. This is just, this is such a heartbreaking case. And that's why, it, like, she was home, you know? Like, she was so close to her house. This is something she'd done before. She was safe. Her boyfriend had just left her. You know, she was going home. Yeah, and you know what? This can happen to anyone, but we don't want it to, you know? And, it, you know, it's just something that... It's so simple. It takes no time at all to pass. And it's wonderful that her family worked so hard to help other families and, and, and prevent this from happening again. So it's a wonderful website, and we really suggest that you um, visit it. And it's going to be, again, in our show notes. But it's justiceforsierra.org. Um, before we go, we do want to thank our new Patreon supporters, 
We thank you so much for joining. We hope you're enjoying the bonus episodes. So we would just want to say a big thank you to Isla Heckel, Mindy E., Annie Garcia, Lori Bayek, Kirsten Felsman, Leah, Dottie Neary, Mary McKenna, Fadden, Paige Giddens, Talia Meachin, James Bunting, Cassie Summers, Lori, Jenny Gange, Mackenzie Bryant, Ashley Stevenson, Nina Warbrook, and Joss McCourt. Thank you so much for joining Patreon. And if you want to join Patreon and get bonus episodes and ad-free episodes, you can do that at patreon.com slash truecrimecouple. All right, guys, we will see you in two weeks. And until then, don't park next to Vance. Bye, guys. Bye.